Welcome to the Well Steading Podcast. This is episode 116. It's June 6, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about oil, how oil drives the economy, and really, although the focus of this show will be discussing oil, the principles apply to investing in general. We're going to be talking about trends, anomalies, markets, valuations, all the things that are relevant to helping you build your wealth by becoming a better investor, and that's whether you invest in the stock market, in options, in real estate, or even if you're just investing in yourself or building your own small business. And speaking of wealth building principles, I'd like to welcome all of you that may be new to the show. If you aren't familiar with my wealth building principles, go back and listen to the first 10 episodes of this podcast. That's where I lay out my philosophies and basically the foundation of how I've built my wealth over these past 30 years. Now, I'm not Warren Buffett. I'm not Bill Gates. I didn't write a really cool app or create a startup. I'm just a middle-class guy that applied simple wealth-building principles that have allowed me over the years to continually increase my earnings, my savings, and then ultimately building a net worth that allowed me to become financially independent. I'm no one special. I'm just a regular guy. If I did it, you can do it too. So check out those 10 wealth building principles. And then as you listen to each episode of this show, you'll see that I try and uh, develop one or more of those principles during each episode. We use those as a filter. And although I don't always say, hey, this episode will focus on wealth building principle number two, that's what I do in my own mind when I prepare for the show. I'm always preparing each episode through the filter of those 10 wealth building principles. And then I use current events or I talk about what's happening in the stock market that day or we answer listener questions. But no matter what the topic is, the theme and the answers are always based on one or more of those 10 wealth building principles. So, hey, check those out. And then before we get started, I'd also like to thank all of you that have gone out to iTunes and other places and left us uh, reviews. I really appreciate that. Obviously, the show doesn't have an advertising budget. The only way we grow the community is if you're out there telling your friends and family about it. The best way for you to do that is by going to iTunes or Stitcher, someplace like that, writing a review. If you also post things or put other comments in your um, social media like LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, those of you that have done that, I really appreciate it. And when you do something like that, don't be shy. Go ahead and get in contact with me through the website, wealthsteading.com. Let me know that you gave us a rating or a review or that you've posted something on your Facebook. I appreciate that. Because of the large amount of emails that I get, I'm not always able to reply back to everybody, but I do read all the ratings and reviews You know, when I'm aware of them, when I know they're out there. Obviously, iTunes Store. I do track that regularly, but if you put something on your Facebook page that I wouldn't know about, hey, let me know what's there. I'll go out and read it. And then, of course, I always read all your emails and everything you submit to me through the website. So, hey, let's get started. Let's talk about oil. This week, there was another meeting of OPEC. They decided to leave their oil production quotas unchanged, which which basically means that they're pumping out at full capacity. I don't think that really surprised anybody. We know that OPEC in general and Saudi Arabia in particular has been very concerned about all the oil that's being produced in the U.S. They don't want to lose market share, although they're not happy about the collapse in oil prices. They also know that it's just a reality of supply and demand. And what a leading country like Saudi Arabia is worried about is, and this happens in all cartels, what they're afraid of is if they would reduce their production to try and increase the price, what would happen is they would take the hit and then other people would benefit. Okay, so they would reduce their quota. And everybody else would agree to it. 
But in reality, the other countries would cheat. And since Saudi Arabia is the largest producer, they're the ones that would have to lead by example. And so by them them not only cutting the production, but announcing that they were going to cut production, that would send a shockwave through the market. Oil prices would rise because there would be a fear that there'd be a lack of demand. And we know about supply and demand. Whenever there's more demand than there is supply, the price goes up. So if Saudi Arabia announced it, they and their other cartel members we're going to cut back production, then the price would naturally rise and it would rise even before they actually cut production because of what happened in anticipation of that production cut. So the price would rise, all the oil producers would benefit, but generally what happens in these situations is, is that the other countries that are in OPEC that are smaller than Saudi Arabia, they generally cheat. And although they say they're going to cut back their production, you know, 5% or 2% or whatever, well, they really don't do it. And then, of course, all the non-OPEC countries, countries like Russia or countries like the U.S., which are not in OPEC, they wouldn't be agreeing to that. They'd keep their production levels up, and so they'd be benefiting from the higher price. And then at the end of the day, what's happened in the past is, is that Saudi Arabia being the leader, they do actually cut back their production. They lose market share, and although the price goes up because they're producing less, they actually get a lower cash flow while all their competitors are benefiting from their discipline. So what we've seen in the last year is that Saudi Arabia has, has refused to cut their production. And then likewise, all the OPEC countries have joined in. As a result, we've had an, we've had an oversupply of oil. And that's why, you know, from a year ago, we've seen prices fluctuate wildly. They were down over 60% at one point, And then they, in the past few months, they've risen up about another 40%. At the end of the day, we were seeing West Texas Intermediate about this time last year, the, the highs it hit last summer. I believe they were in the $110, $115. Right now, West Texas Intermediate is at about $58. So even though prices have come up lately, even though you feel like you're paying more at the pump, on average, you're probably paying about $1 less per gallon than you were a year ago. That's obviously a huge savings to you as a consumer and anybody that consumes oil. One tangent I'll go off on too. I'm talking about West Texas Intermediate. That's generally what we talk about when we talk about American oil, United States oil. The British and then basically the Europeans, they gauge their oil pricing off of something called Brent, B-R-E-N-T, Brent oil. And so sometimes when you hear the price of oil from day to day, it'll sound like it's wild fluctuations when it's really not. It's just that one person may be quoting Brent oil pricing and the other person is quoting West Texas Intermediate. And generally, there's a higher premium paid for Brent oil. That's the European version of oil. And that's because back in the 70s, Congress banned the exporting of American oil. And remember, oil is fungible. That means that it can travel across borders or across nations freely. And so generally, when you have a commodity like gold that can, that can be transported across all borders and all nations very freely and it's very fungible like that, then the price of gold in Moscow would be the same as the price of gold in London would be the same as the price of gold in New York. Well, with oil, because American companies aren't allowed to export domestic oil that's been drilled and produced in the United States, that means that that West Texas Intermediate Oil can only be sold within the borders of the United States. And so consequently, it's not fungible. It can't be exported to London or to Paris, for example, or to Saigon. And for that reason, it's pricing. Remember, all pricing is based on supply and demand. The pricing of American oil, West Texas Intermediate, can only be based on the demand from the United States. Now, the United States is the largest oil user and we're the largest economy and market in the world. 
So that's not that big of a deal. But you can see how that restriction on exporting oil limits the fungibility of American West Texas Intermediate. And so consequently, our demand is limited to the demand of the United States. And our price for West Texas Intermediate always trades at a discount to Brent oil, which can be traded throughout the world. The world demand for oil is larger than the United States demand for oil. And so therefore, that's the premium for Brent. And a little bit of a tangent there, but I wanted to clear up some confusion because I know there's some people that don't understand the difference between Brent oil and West Texas Intermediate. So let's talk about oil for a minute here too, just in terms of the broader overall economy. I know there are a lot of people that are really big on renewable energy and solar and wind and there's other people that are very pro-nuclear energy. And everybody has different reasons. Some people want to do it for economic reasons. Other people want to do it for national security reasons. Other people are concerned about global warming or climate change. You know, whatever your particular opinion is about those ideas and whichever energy you may favor, the bottom line is, is that right now the structure of the global economy, it's based on petroleum oil and oil's derivatives. And I'm going to throw natural gas in that mix because generally the production of oil and natural gas go hand in hand. So no matter what you're a proponent of, no matter what you'd like to see happen, the reality of the fact is, is that the global economy runs by a particular energy, and that energy source today, in 2015, is petroleum-based energy. Now, as investors, as people that are concerned about building our wealth, we have to make our investment choices not based on the way we want the world to be, but the way it is. And so although you may be concerned about your, your uh, carbon footprint or about CO2 emissions or whatever, if you don't invest in things that are favored by petroleum-based energy, you're not going to be maxing out your opportunities. And so consequently, you may feel better about yourself. You may have some moral superiority. But at the end of the day, you're going to have less money. And since you don't have as much wealth as you could, you're not going to be able to do as many good things as you would have otherwise hoped to be able to do. Energy drives any economy. And as I say, right now, no matter what you may want, petroleum oil is what's driving our economy. And so any fluctuations in the price of oil or the supply or the demand of oil has a major impact on our economy. It will send ripples and shockwaves through the economy. And if you can see those trends and spot them early on, you'll be able to be a more profitable investor. And when I talk about energy driving the economy, let's break this down into a very simple form. Let's imagine that you came to, to the American continent back in, say, the 1600s. You know, you came over with the pilgrims or the conquistadors or, or you were already a Native American Indian living here. Well, where did you settle? Well, chances are you settled along the coastline and not only along the coast, but also probably along the mouth of a river that dumped out into the ocean. Now, why did you live there? You lived there because that's where the source of energy was for that economy. If you were coming over from Europe, you obviously had to come across the Atlantic Ocean. You landed on a coastline. And then if you wanted to go into the interior of the country, you had to do that on rivers. There were no trains. There were no automobiles. There were no roads. So you had to do that on river travel. And the Native Americans did the same thing. They obviously used rivers and streams to migrate and travel into the interior of the country. So all settlements, all cities, all towns, any communities built by Native Americans, they were generally along the banks of a river. And the biggest of those communities was where the mouth of that river flowed into the Atlantic Ocean. That's where the white settlers came. And, and what did they do? They not only mimicked the Indians in their travel using canoes and things, but then they also built larger boats. They started growing crops on the coastal towns. Trappers and, and hunters, people like that, went up the rivers to, to get beaver pelts and to hunt buffalo and deer for meat. 
They brought that down the river into those larger towns along the coast. They explored for gold. Those things were sent back to Europe. More people came over. Those communities along the coast and along those rivers got larger and larger. Factories were built. They would build water wheels, which would harness the flow of the water down the river. That would be able to power a factory or a mill, you know, like by grinding wheat or something like that. That again, that was their energy source. So they could build a product because their machinery could be powered from the water flowing down the stream or the river that they were on. That product could then be manufactured. And once it was manufactured, it could be put on a boat or a barge and it could be transported either up or downstream the river they were on, ultimately getting back to the Atlantic Ocean and probably shipping over to Europe. So you see, that's why communities were built along rivers and along the coastal areas. Well, let's fast forward to today. We all aren't required to live along a river or along the ocean to be able to sustain our life. We have other forms of energy. I live in the high mountain deserts of Utah. I grew up in western Pennsylvania. Here in Utah, what they call a river, we would call a creek or a stream back in Pennsylvania because we had the Monongahela, the Allegheny, the Ohio. These were the huge tributaries that went into the Mississippi. Those, to me, are real rivers. The things that we have out here are just little creeks and streams. But it's all they have, and so consequently, it's what they're used to. They call it a river. When the explorers and the fur trappers and the original pioneers and Mormon settlers came into Utah, where do you think they settled? They settled along those creeks and streams. That was their energy flow. They needed the water. Well, today, I'm not required to live along a a river or a stream. My house is powered by electricity. It's either generated through nuclear energy or the burning of fossil fuels like natural gas or coal. But the reason I say that our economy is powered by petroleum is because our lifestyle is based around the fact that we have personal transportation in the forms of cars which run on either diesel fuel or gasoline, and then all the conveniences and services that are brought to me, like food and the other perishables that I use, all the goods and services that I buy, they are eventually brought to me through trucking companies. These large trucks obviously all burn diesel fuel. We did not have the internal combustion engine that burns diesel and oil the global economy would be drastically different. Now, a lot of you are saying, hey, there's Tesla, there's lithium batteries, there's solar energy. And again, we've done previous episodes on all that. I'm not discounting any of that. And I know I've received emails from several of you saying about, hey, you didn't talk about nuclear energy. I'm aware of all those things. And in the future, things like lithium battery technology and electrical powered cars, things like that, they may all one day replace or be a substitute for the internal combustion engine. But that's in the future. Again, I'm talking about today. And right now, the economy we live in, it's driven by the internal combustion engine, which consumes petroleum-based products. And the littlest fluctuation in either the supply or the demand of oil can have a major impact on our economy. It's about how free markets work and about how when there's any type of disruption, that's what I would call an anomaly. And if you go back and listen to the 10 Wealth Building Principles, when I talk about profiting from trends, profiting from nature... What we do to determine trends and to look for pattern recognition, what we're really doing is we're just looking for anomalies. We're looking at what's different. What's different today than happened yesterday? Because if I can discern something is different today and I can discern it earlier than other people do, then I'll know that because there's an anomaly today, things will be different tomorrow than they were yesterday, and that's how I'll be able to profit. Well, anomalies generally occur when there's a difference between the demand for a product or service and the supply of that product or service. That's most magnified in oil and petroleum-based products because, again, they are the energy that runs the entire economy. 
I've received some questions from listeners as to why I haven't talked about the avian flu, the bird flu that's affecting, um, you know, obviously the chicken and turkey populations and egg supply. You know, why I haven't talked about that as a trend in an investing opportunity? Well, while that is an anomaly and that will have some impacts, the fact that there's a shortage of turkeys or chickens or eggs is not going to impact the global economy anywhere near to the degree that a fluctuation in oil prices does because there's things that we can substitute for eggs and chickens and turkeys. Now, substituting eggs is a little bit harder, but if you don't have enough chickens, you eat more pork, or if you don't eat more pork, you eat more beef. And for the overall American consumer, even if the price of their eggs double, that's still a very small amount of their disposable income that they're spending on eggs or egg products, you know, French toast or other food products that would have eggs in them. So between the ability of being able to substitute for other products and then the fact that eggs and chicken and turkeys, although a large billion dollar industry, they still make up a substantially small part of a middle class American's overall disposable income. And so, yes, there are opportunities with the avian bird flu. Right now, and that's currently as of today, I don't see that as a major trend that's affecting my investment decisions. I'm currently not now invested in any type of food or restaurant type company that would suffer with specific exposure to that industry, nor do I want to go in and, and take the specific stock risk of shorting something like Yum Brands or uh, McDonald's because I think that this is going to affect their breakfast menu so much that it's a good shorting opportunity. Now listen closely to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this isn't an opportunity or trend. I'm just not saying that the risk reward is such that I'm prepared to use this avian flu as an anomaly for a short-term trend that I think that I can profit off of. If it develops more, if I see more turbulence with price and volume actions of specific stocks, I may change my mind. But right now, I just don't think it's large enough of an issue that I want to take the risk. On the other hand, small fluctuations in the price of oil do drastically change the economy. If you go back and listen to the episodes that we had back in October of 2014, that's when oil was making its lowest of lows. And at the same time, the American economy was getting over a very short-term worry about Ebola virus. That's when the first Ebola viruses were detected in the U.S. back in early October. Well, by around October 20th, the Ebola scare was over and the reality of extremely low oil prices was evident that a short-term trend existed that was going to favor consumers of oil-based products. So transportation companies, airlines, they were all going to be the direct beneficiary of these lower oil prices, and they were a good place to put your money. Go back and listen to those episodes. You can kind of hear real-term how, in my mind, I saw that trend developing and, and the actions I took for it. So that's why I want to point out that anytime there's a fluctuation in oil pricing, there's an investment opportunity for you that's just waiting for you to take advantage of it. Now, the reason that this is so timely and that I'm bringing this up right now is the fact that this week, OPEC and primarily Saudi Arabia announced that they were going to keep their full production of oil, that they weren't going to cut back and try and support higher oil prices. In my interpretation, what that means, and I've been talking about this for a long time, in my opinion, we're going to see oil pricing moving back down. Now, I don't know how far it's going to go, but I think that oil pricing per barrel is more likely to be in the $40 range than in the $60 range. In recent weeks, oil had gotten up above $60 a barrel. Right now, it's at $58. I'm personally taking a short position in oil. I think it's more likely to drop further. Even if oil were only to drop down to $50 a barrel, which I think is highly probable, that would be a drop from current price levels of around 13 14%. So a lot of money can be made on that spread. And that's if you decide to short oil directly or by shorting oil companies or oil producers 
or by buying an inverse ETF that shorts oil for you. Now remember, in this podcast, I never make specific recommendations or offer advice. I'm only telling you what's on my mind, my opinions, and things that are going through my head as as a money manager and as a private investor. But the impact of oil pricing is so important in this economy and it's so widespread that you don't have to just place your bets on the specific commodity of oil or natural gas or um, the people that are in the energy sector, the companies that are in the energy sector exploring foreign producing oil products. It's broad enough that you can look and see, well, what effect is that going to have on airlines? What effect is that going to have on utility stocks? So if we've seen oil peak out here recently and it's going to head back down closer to $40 a barrel, there are opportunities that you can look for in a wide variety of sectors of the economy. The other thing I want to point out, and this has been very well illustrated in the price of oil over the last year, is the effects of supply and demand. Now recently, the reason we've seen the price of oil recover so much in these past few weeks and months is because of all the oil rigs that have been taken offline and then also the decrease in the amount of oil inventories in the United States. So you've had a reduction in the inventory of oil. Anytime you have a reduction in inventory, that would lead you to believe that you have increasing demand or at least a lack of supply. And then anytime you have a producer that's shutting down their machinery or their exploration or whatever it is that makes that product or service or mines that commodity, well, likewise, there's a concern that you're going to have less supply than demand. So in the past few months, In the United States, we've seen more than 60% of our oil rigs come offline, meaning that they've either been mothballed or temporarily taken out of service because oil got so cheap that it wasn't worth keeping them in production. So that obviously was a concern to investors. Investors saw an opportunity where the oil exploration and drilling companies were going to be able to restrict their amount of supply for now and into the future, and that would bring the price of oil up. That's why we've seen the oil increase. And then also, consequently, inventories have been kept lower. And so you can see how that would also be a sign to investors that the overall supply of oil was dwindling and so the price should be coming up. And consequently, that is what happened. The price of oil has recovered some 40% since the lows we saw in like December and January. But here's the problem and here's why I think that maybe oil has peaked at least temporarily. And when I talk about oil peaking, I always have to talk about one caveat And that's minus any major war or other type of government instability in the Middle East. Obviously, if there's any type of major violence in the Middle East, then that will disrupt the supply of oil and all bets are off other than the fact that we know that oil will go higher than $60 a barrel. When it comes to investing in the economy, the thing I always say is I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Well, when it comes to oil, that cannot be overemphasized. There has historically been a great deal of instability in the Middle East. Any major disruption there will cause oil prices to soar. Now, it may be temporary, but they will go up and they will go up significantly. And that's why you need to protect yourself in any of these investment decisions. You don't want to bet all your investment, your entire portfolio. You never want to bet the farm on any one idea or any one trade because something can happen in a far off land that can totally throw off your investment strategy. I won't go down the rabbit hole in this podcast, but I will say that in my opinion, the reason that we have so much instability in the Middle East is specifically to support a higher price in oil. Now, that's a conspiracy theory. You can take that for what it's worth and think about it yourself to come to your own conclusions. But there are a lot of people, individuals, companies, and countries which profit from higher oil prices And you can imagine how it would be in their best interest to continually create a never-ending conflict so that they can make higher profits. Take that for what it's worth. 
but in terms of the supply and demand of oil. I illustrated to you that over these past few months, why the price of oil has recovered so much is because it's because these 60% of oil rigs have been taken offline and because our oil inventories in the United States have decreased. But you have to look beyond the headlines to see the future and to determine a trend. And although over 60% of the rigs have been taken offline in the United States, do you know what? Our production is pretty much flat. We're still producing somewhere between 9 and 10 million barrels of oil a day. And that's roughly 10% of the world's production, which is about 50% more than what we were producing like eight years ago. And that's why we saw that major collapse in oil prices to begin with. That's why you're paying on average about a dollar less for gasoline today than what you were paying for a year ago. Remember back in 2008, everybody was worried about peak oil. They thought we were going to run out of oil. Well, since then, because of the fracking revolution, because of the shale oil revolution, because of horizontal drilling, all these new technologies, and I've done previous episodes on these. You can go back and listen to what I said in the past about them. Because of that revolutionary technology shift, the United States is producing almost twice as much oil as it did just a decade ago. And even though our production is only about 10% of the world production, that still has a significant influence. And right now, no one's talking about all the peak oil concerns that they were worried about in 2008. In 2008, oil got up to about $145 a barrel. Today, it's at $58 a barrel. Even with 60% of the United States oil rigs being taken offline, we're still producing the same amount of oil. And that's because that's the way the free market works. The rigs that were most expensive to operate, those were the ones that were shut down. The rigs that were maybe the newest and hadn't been put into full production, well, those are the ones that have been mothballed and shut down. And when we talk about these rigs being shut down, we don't mean that they were disabled and taken apart. They're all out there. The capital investment has already been made. Whenever oil prices start to move up, whether it's $60, $60.50, $61, $62, whatever that price is, we know right now the ceiling for oil is somewhere around $60 a barrel, and that's what keeps 40% of the rigs in the United States operational. At any fraction of a cent above $60, it will encourage more of those rigs to be brought back online. I talk about this in previous episodes when Harold Hamm went out to North Dakota back in the 90s to start prospecting for shale oil. He did that when the price of oil was around $20 or $25 a barrel. So don't believe that these rigs can't operate and can't be profitable at $60 a barrel. They can, otherwise they wouldn't be operating today. And in fact, if you dig down into the numbers, I think that many of them can still be profitable even at around $20 or $25 a barrel. Now, I'm not saying it's going to get that low, and that's why I believe that at least the short-term future for oil is that it's going to be closer to $40 a barrel than it is at $60 a barrel. So a lot of this recent spike in the pricing of oil has been because of that large headline that has said, you know, 60% or more of rigs have been taken offline. But what I'm trying to emphasize to you is that the reality of that is, is that we're still pumping all that same amount of oil. And the price of oil isn't based on the rig count. The price of oil is based on the supply. If the supply hasn't changed, then the price of oil has artificially been brought up. And things that are artificially brought up do not last. They eventually fall back down. The other major headline that we've seen over the last weeks and months has been the fact that oil inventories have been dropping. And while that's true... The fact that is less publicized but that is very true is that even with these decreasing inventories of oil, the reason they're decreasing is because we're at 80-year highs. We're holding more oil in reserve today than we have at any time in the last 80 years. 
So of course they would be reducing oil inventories. It's because that over the previous months when the price of oil collapsed, the inventory built up so large, they have to wean themselves down from it. But again, that's just a temporary fluctuation. The supply of oil hasn't changed. So as I read the headlines, I see them overhyping the fact that we're drawing down from our oil inventories and that that must therefore mean that the price of oil is going to go higher. But think of this in your own terms. Even though we are stockpiling more oil than we ever have in the last 80 years, we're still not at full capacity. I've seen the numbers vary, and I never know who to believe. And you got to ask yourself, too, how anybody would really know how much actual capacity is out there when you consider all the alternative ways to store oil. But I've seen estimates saying that we're somewhere between 60 to 80% of capacity. And I think it's closer to 60 than 80 but we're not full, so we still have more room that we could be storing additional oil. So if oil prices, in fact, are going to go up, think of it in your own terms. Why would the storage capacity being depleted if prices are going to go up? If you're driving your car and you look down at your gas gauge and you see that you used a quarter of a tank of gas, meaning that you're at about 75% capacity storage in your fuel tank, and if at the same time you knew that oil prices were going to go up tomorrow, wouldn't you go fill up on the way home the night before just so that you had cheaper gas in that last 25% of your tank that's left over? Well, if all these big oil conglomerates are convinced that oil is going higher and that we're going on to $70 like T. Boone Pickens is talking about, then why would they be leaving anywhere between 20 and 40% of storage underutilized? If the price is going up another $10 a barrel, why wouldn't they totally be topping off their tanks? Well, again, I think it's because people aren't certain that oil is going up to 70 or $80 a barrel. I think the ceiling, for the near term at least, is at $60. I think we're much more likely to be dropping down from here. Remember, it's not about how much storage you have. It's not about how many rigs are out there. It's about how much oil is actually being produced and how much is being consumed. And right now, there's more oil being produced than consumed. Well, this podcast is running a little longer than I thought it would. The next topic that I want to talk about is very crucial, and it's about that key balance of supply and demand and really just how little incremental changes and small variations can drastically disrupt the system. But there's a lot left to talk about. I'm going to end this episode here. We'll come back tomorrow, and I'll finish up talking about oil and, in particular, what this supply and demand balance is all about. So as always, if you have questions or concerns, you want to get in touch with me, you can do that through the website, wealthsteading.com. Until tomorrow's episode where we pick up where we left off today, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.